What a thrill, all these people, hordes, hordes of people, who could imagine? I've never seen, I think, so many people in one place at one time in my whole life, I don't think. <laughs> it's pretty thrilling. Nice to see everybody. Uh, and I hope you had uh, a good holiday. We, di we did. Uh, we had our son and his family with us which is always uh, very joyful. They live so far away, you know, whenever we see them, it's a big joy and we get very excited about it and we, we, and we buy a lot of food. So it was a good week and we had fun. Uh, but uh, also it was a little sad because uh, after uh, being with us for just about 24 hours, maybe a few hours more than that, our daughter-in-law, was suddenly called home to El Paso because our oldest brother, who she dearly loves, was suddenly rushed to the ICU where he was put on life support and is sort of at the, at the edge of life and death with not really great chances for survival. And his name is Hector Loya and he's on our well-being list. And also, uh, during the week, last week, um, a dear, dear member of our Jewish meditation group, Joan Reese. I don't know if any of you know Joan. Yes. Yeah. She was one of our original uh, members of Makor Or, and she died at home in San Francisco, uh, attended by her 90-year-old husband. They were married, I think, 63 years, something like that. Mark and their two grown children were there. And I was in touch with them almost every day during that week and I shared their feeling as Joan faded away uh, from this life, pretty sad. Although by any, any measure, Joan had a really good life, a blessed life, a long life and a peaceful and beautiful death, still uh, loss is hard. And uh, it sort of makes you wonder. So uh, that's how I was contemplating our text this week. As I was uh, thinking about the strangeness of life and death and how it always turns out that joy and sorrow are mixed up together. So I thought of how grateful I am to Vasubandhu for his noble attempt, like the noble attempts of so many others in all the world's great religions, to try to help us cope with this mystery. No doubt you've heard me say this before, but I really do think that religion is always and only about death. Because human beings are the only creatures that have religion, and we're the only creatures that die. I don't think that's a coincidence. We're the only creatures who die because we're the only ones, as far as we know, who have a word, death. 
And so we can anticipate. And knowledge of death pervades all of our thoughts and all of our feelings, even though mostly we don't know it. Other animals don't actually die. They just live, and then they don't. But we die. And this is uh, painful and deeply disturbing, just because it is so hard to understand. And you know this if you've been present at the time of a death, and I'm sure many of us in this room have. And you think, what? What? What just happened? What was that? A living being in the blink of an eye is now suddenly a beloved lump of flesh. And the change is both sudden and gradual. Nobody knows how this happens, and nobody knows what happens. Death is the reality limit. It's just on the other side of the boundary of what we can conceive, feel, or explain. And that's why deep grief is so difficult and so confusing. I know because I'm watching Mark go through it. I'm watching from a very great distance the people in Israel go through it, the people in Palestine go through it. In grief, we feel everything. We feel angry. We feel numb. We feel desolate. We feel cheated. We feel sad. We feel resentful. resentful. We feel perplexed. We feel energized. We're going through something, but who knows what? Or whether we go through it and end up somewhere other than where we started from. But the thing is, death isn't just death. Death is also life. This insight is deeply embedded in Buddhist thought from the very beginning. Impermanence is death. Every moment arises and passes away. There's nothing that abides for a while and then disappears. The only way life goes on is if it ends moment by moment. Every moment must die even as it's born in order for the next moment to arise. There is no other way it could happen. And this is not a Buddhist belief or an article of Buddhist catechism. This is just a natural fact of life, expressed in Buddhism with the phrase, all dharmas are empty. They rise and they pass away simultaneously and are therefore not what we think they are. 
So the problem is of death is not something that we can think about for a while and then forget about it until we have to think about it. No, the problem of death is the problem of life. It's the problem of living, how to live. Because we don't understand that this is so, we suffer a lot. And then we go around causing each other to suffer. And all this is what Vasubandhu is writing about in his text, even though he doesn't directly say it. If you think about what he's saying, he's talking about this. He's trying to help us understand the real nature of life and death. So another way to understand the three natures that we've been studying here is that the, the, the life is another name for parikalpita, the imaginary nature. Paratantra, the dependent nature, is another word to describe life lived in a wider and more humane scope. And parinishpana, the complete realized nature, we could say, is death. The absolute, the boundless truth, which we can never experience directly or understand, and yet is always present in the middle of every moment of our lives. We've been saying all along, and Vasubandhu makes clear that the three natures that I just described are not three different things. They're not even three different perspectives. They're not things, and they're not perspectives. They're just words that Vasubandhu cooked up, hoping that they would give us some feeling about our lives a feeling that we actually could train in through the course of our practice that we could actually sense in some way a feeling that once we develop it can actually change the way we live. A few weeks ago, uh, we mentioned, following J. Garfield's commentary, that, that verses 11 through 22, those 11 verses, describe how the various pairs of opposites apply to all three of the natures. So last week, we studied verses 11 through 13, in which Vasubandhu explains that all three natures, the imaginary, the dependent, and the completely realized, are both existent and non-existent. So following along with this program in the next three verses that we're going to talk about a little tonight, he explains how these three natures are also, each one in a different way, both dual and non-dual. So verse 14. Since an imagined thing is known as dual, but being one, meaning not dual, due to the absence of that duality, the imagined nature of the foolish is said to be both dual and unitary. So 
to decode that a little bit, what he's saying is that the imaginary, ordinary world that we're crashing around in and making a big mess in is dualistic, of course. Me and you, and my side, your side, what I want, what I don't want, what I love, what I hate, all that is the world. But that duality is just a projection. It doesn't actually exist. It's all just mind. So in fact, the imaginary world is not dualistic. So on the one hand, yes, it's dualistic. We crash around, we do all that stuff. On the other hand, really, it's not dualistic. It's unitary. So this great idea, you know, so what sounds nice or not, or it sounds like some abstraction that, I mean, how much does it matter? What are we talking about anyway? But if you think about it in the way that I was describing a minute ago, it gets more interesting. In other words, if you think of duality as life and non-duality as death, the plot kind of thickens. Because that's what death is, right? Death is oneness, isn't it? It's the end of duality. There's no more you over here and that world over there. That's gone. The space between you and the world collapses. Which is why we say, she's gone. She is. We think of death as the end, which, of course, it is in a way. But also, death is just the end of two-ness, the end of me and you-ness, the end of duality, and the beginning of oneness. And if oneness and two-ness were completely different from one another, and two-ness were the painful samsara and oneness was nirvana, then our practice would all be to get together and die as soon as we could, possibly could. <laughs> That's what we would all be aiming for. But it's a joke, because that doesn't make any sense. I mean, like, what kind of, that's, that would be some crazy religion, although we've seen those things, <laughs> you know. But uh, no, I don't think that's our plan. Anyway, obviously, we are biologically programmed to want to live, not die, even though when you think about it, death must be a whole lot easier, don't you think, <laughs> than life. But Vasubandhu's point in this verse is that oneness and twoness are not different. That's the whole point. He's saying that the imagined world we live in, this imagined alienation and imagined separation that causes so much unhappiness and so much strife, is actually oneness. We just don't notice. And, and this point is made over and over again in Zen literature. What is Buddha? What is the true way? What is oneness? The cypress tree in the courtyard. 
the pebble striking bamboo, the sound of the mountain stream, a plum blossom. The world of duality and separation is a perfect expression of oneness. And when we know this, what are we going to feel? We're going to feel a great love. And isn't it fantastic that our whole idea of love and our whole discourse about love is so tangled up in our desire and in our sexuality, sexuality which evokes past and future generations. Isn't it amazing that what is most sublime in our human life is somehow completely identified with what is so, so often the most problematic and painful thing? So Vasubandhu is saying in these verses that separation is oneness and that there can be no separation without oneness and no oneness without separation. That to think of them as two different things is to conceptualize things and not see what's happening in this lifetime. Form is emptiness, emptiness is form. The world is both exile and homecoming and death completes life, and life completes death. To understand this with our whole body and mind, that's our path. And that's what we're learning every time we sit in silence. And as through a lifetime of practice, we integrate that silence into our daily living. In his commentary on this particular verse, uh, Ben brings up one of my favorite phrases, probably my absolutely favorite phrase from the Prajnaparamita literature. Patient acceptance of dharmas that fail to be produced. I love that. I've talked about it a lot of times. Patient acceptance of dharmas that fail to be produced. In other words, dharmas that are not there patient acceptance of dharmas that fail to be produced. That this one phrase might explain the whole practice, and it might be the only practice instruction you ever need. All dharmas are empty means that nothing exists in the way we are so convinced that it does. Which means that all our very real problems are imaginary, and that there really is never any need to struggle and to create as much trouble for ourselves and one another as we seem to always do. Wouldn't it be great if everyone could just appreciate that one little thing? Wouldn't that be great? It would be the end of all war and all strife. Because everyone would just simply understand with their whole hearts. It would just be common knowledge, common feeling, without question, that everybody 
is 100% worthy of love and respect, everybody, 100%, of course, has the right to live and prosper and be loved, and each one of us would be very happy to cooperate, compromise, and sacrifice, just roll up our sleeves and get to work on what any one of us and all of us together would simply need to do to make sure that everyone is taken care of in the best and fairest way possible. It would be a simple matter of practicality. That's all. I mean, that would be enough. Practicality is a big deal. But you can't even be practical in this world because we're too busy yelling at one another to even start to be practical. I remember, I must have mentioned, years ago going to a climate, some kind of conference, and a scientist said, oh, oh, we can fix this. I couldn't believe it. I said, what? I thought it would be impossible. No, no, we, we have the technologies, we could fix it. It's just that we'll never will because people are so selfish and so un unable to speak to one another and agree on anything that whatever solutions we may have, we, won't, we will not employ. Practical matters are easy compared to the hardness of the human heart. All dharmas are empty, meaning they're not there. They fail to be produced. They don't exist as we project them to exist. And that's why our practice is to patiently accept dharmas as they arise and pass away in the same moment. Not to resist, but to patiently accept everything that arises and passes away in its most basic form, in its most practical and doable form. This is the practice of being patient with afflictive emotions. Not being caught by them, not being spun around by them, but watching them arise and fall away as they will if we don't grab a hold of them and wave them around. This is our basic practice, and it makes a huge difference in our lives. In more complex forms, it involves our, our relational, social, and political lives, being patient with the world and its pain, and acting always to the best of our ability with kindness and compassion, and never allowing ourselves to be enmeshed in anger or violent action, although sometimes we might really feel like it. Patient acceptance of dharmas that fail to be produced. Whenever we're confused and pushed out of shape, we can just assume we, we forgot that. And it means that we remember that it often happens that the things we really don't want and the things that we fear the most are exactly the things that we need for our lives. It means remembering that when it comes to the really, really important things about being human, 
We really don't know what or how to do. We cannot control what happens. And the only trustworthy thing is our practice in its widest sense. So in the next two verses, Vasubandhu applies this idea of the three natures being both dual and non-dual to the second and the third natures, the dependent nature and the complete realized natures. So here's verse 15, and in this case I'm using Jay Garfield's translation. Since as an object of thought it is dual, but as a mere appearance it is unitary, the other dependent nature is said to be both dual and unitary. And here I, I use Jay's translation because it reminds us more clearly that the essence of Vasubandhu's argument, remember this is Yogacara or Vijnapti Matrata, mind-only, representation-only school of Buddhism. His fundamental argument is everything is mind, there's only mind. Maybe you also remember, uh, I guess a few weeks ago when we were appreciating Ben's pointing out for us in his commentary that when the word thought, that we translate thought, is used in Buddhism, it never means simply thought. It means consciousness. All the activities of mind, which include perception and all feeling and emotion. So this verse is emphasizing that the world we live in is literally an object of mind, an object of consciousness, an object of thought. The tree over there is an object of thought. It is the tree of our consciousness. Its imaginary nature is that it seems to be over there and not us. The tree is over there, I'm over here. The tree is outside, I'm inside. But that's not really so. The tree is in me. I am in the tree. That's what the tree is. And the tree's dependent nature is manifest for me when I know this. When I understand that the tree is an object of thought, that it exists in my world because I am here and I am conscious. So the dependent nature differs from the imaginary nature in that it is no longer naive, it recognizes that everything is mind, it recognizes that really fundamentally there's no out there and no in here. It's not that everything is in here, it's just that there's no in here or out there. Not that everything is in my mind, my mind isn't anywhere. Sometimes I feel this. I feel it very directly as I go through my day. It's not a spectacular thing. It helps if my sitting practice is good and I'm sitting every day. It helps if I'm a little quiet. You feel as you move through space that there is no space, there's no ground, there's no object. Moments 
occur, dissolving one into another. And you're not even here. Time is just passing or not passing. And, and I can hear the ocean and I can hear the birds, but, but they're not really there. And I find this very beautiful and comforting because there's nothing to do. I do not have to continue to push the stone uphill. I mean, I'm doing stuff, of course, since there's no way you can be alive and not be doing stuff. But there's nothing to struggle against because there's nothing that must be done. And maybe you feel it the most, that what I'm talking about here, possibly, in the loving presence of others. So that's what Vasubandhu is referring to in the second line of his verse when he talks about mere appearance is unitary. Mere appearance here means thusness, things as they are-ness, as Suzuki Roshi puts it. Things as they are just exist. They flow. There's no problem. But things as they appear in the imaginary world are, are a problem, always a problem, a big problem, one way or the other. If you're rich, it's a problem. If you're poor, it's also a problem. If you're in between, that's a problem too. <laughs> if you're a man, big problem. If you're a woman, also a problem. But things as they are is just things as they are. And with wisdom and compassion, we respond to them because, well, that's what living beings always do, naturally. In verse 16, he goes on to the third nature, the complete realized nature, and he shows how it too, like the other previous two verses, is also both dual and non-dual. Verse 16, since it is the nature of dual existence and the singular nature of non-duality, the complete realized nature is said to be both dual and non-dual. So the complete realized nature, the one we like the best, you know, <laughs> is the profound realization that everything is mind, everything is one, and the only way this oneness ever appears is just like this in front of us. So as the first line here says, the essential nature of the imaginary world is its complete realized nature, its Buddha nature. In other words, your true nature, your most essential character, isn't you, or your fortunate or unfortunate karma, or your expressive or not so expressive personality. That's all there, but that's not really you. The real you is your Buddha nature. 
your imaginary nature, your personality, all the rest of it, all your entanglements and attachments of this life will pass away when your life is over. But your Buddha nature, your essential nature, your complete realized nature, which remember, as we've learned, both exists and does not, and so never came, can't go. So it doesn't pass away. Heart Sutra says, no birth, no death. So the complete realized nature is the essence of the passing dualistic world. It is oneness itself, as the second line says. But then, of course, as by now we can fully expect, the next two lines say the opposite. Like the first two natures, the complete realized nature is not just oneness. <clears throat> it's both oneness and not oneness. And of course, it has to be that way. This reminds me of the time, I, I'm sure I've mentioned this before, but uh, I don't go to very many conferences, so I'm always astonished by going to a conference. You know, and I went to some, I was invited to some conference on uh, non-duality for some reason. I don't know why, who invited me or what I was doing there. I didn't know anybody there, you know. And I'm wandering around listening to all the people talk. <clears throat> and I was so impressed that in this conference on non-duality, every speaker I heard was speaking dualistically. I was surprised, you know. Here was a conference on non-duality, and everybody was talking about oneness, which struck me as entirely dualistic, right? Because oneness denies the reality of dualism, and is therefore precisely dualistic. Actually, there's no escape from dualism or non-dualism. As soon as you decide it's one and not the other, you're doomed, entangled. Life is always both. And the Zen masters are constantly harping on this point. As soon as you think it's one, kaboom, it's the other. You know, that's what they're always doing. And Vasubandhu is doing the same thing. Non-dualism, oneness, transcendence, enlightenment, even enlightenment itself, is another dualistic viewpoint. It's just another way of looking at things. That's what Vasubandhu is saying in this verse. And if you think otherwise, if you think that you have seen or known the truth, think again. <laughs> even though we see the truth constantly. That's the only thing we ever see. The trouble is, as soon as we decide that it's the truth, we're, we're all mixed up. And still entirely correct in our being all mixed up. And, and this is what I really appreciate. I've always appreciated about not just Zen, but about Buddhism in general. 
now I, I see that the same teaching is in every other religion I've ever looked into. But it might not be as obvious you know, in those religions as it is in Buddhism and Zen. Which is that the practice and the teaching gives us a way, a path, to be touched by the truth, to really appreciate the truth, but it does not give us the truth itself, because the truth itself is, as Vasubandhu is telling us, beyond any objective grasping. Dogen calls this going beyond Buddha. So I'm going to close with a poem. But before I do that, a few, a few uh, things, practical and not practical. First of all, just to say that uh, Kathy and I are going to leave for Mexico in a few days, so we won't be here next week. And I thought that by that time, uh, you would be ready for a little break from Vasubandhu. I'm so grateful that you're patient with all this stuff. So we'll have a little break next week. And we're going to have, uh, we're online only next week, and we'll have a uh, talk by Ruth Ozeki, our newly transmitted priest. I don't think Ruth has ever, uh, I think Ruth is here tonight. I don't think she's ever, hi Ruth. I don't think she's ever given a talk at Everyday Zen, and so it'll be great for everybody to get to know her. She's a wonderful person. She doesn't mind my saying so, or does mind my saying so. <laughs> and so you'll have fun with her. And then I'll be back the next week on the 13th, and we'll have the 13th and 20th, we'll have seminar. And we'll take this year only one week off for the holiday, the 27th. Then we'll be back the following uh, Wednesday for more of Asabandu. On the 16th, though, we're going to have an event here at the church. You know, uh, because we're having our sittings at Green Gulch, we're sort of subject to their schedule. You can't just do things when you want to do it. You have to do it when it works for them. So they are not uh, able to let us sit there in December or January, which is too bad for us. But that's their schedule. So I think we're going to have, instead, we'll be here in December. And uh, instead of sitting at Green Gulch in January, we'll sit at the very beginning of February and open our practice period then. But it's, it's a good, because then we can take this December, the 16th event, and not have a regular sitting, but have an informal time with some sitting and maybe talking in small groups, kind of like a chance for us to talk together more than we usually do. And, uh, and then we'll finish with um, reflections on the precepts and the full moon ceremony. That's the plan. A little shorter day than usual, 10 to 4, instead of 9 to about 5. And I hope, uh, so we won't have Dharma Seminar in person at all in December, but we will have that event on the 16th, so I hope as many of you as possible can come. And remember, since we're not at Green Gulch, it means two things. Number one, bring a lunch, maybe some food to share. It's the holidays. You'll have tons of cookies in your house. And uh, also, bring a Zafu if you need one, because Green Gulch gives us Zafus, but the church doesn't. You know, and people also have to register. I'm not registered for it. 
Oh, oh they do register yeah. through the Everyday Zen site. That's right. Yeah. Right, not through Green Gulch. Like yeah, not, not Green Gulch, as we usually do. Okay. Thank you for that, yeah. On the, on the site, yeah, okay. Also, uh, on a totally different note, I just want to um, touch in with you to say that uh, I'm happy, and I know you're happy too, that right now there's a ceasefire in Gaza at the moment. There's no bombing going on. And that is a uh, cause for happiness. But, you know, you cannot forget the trauma that has already happened. And you can't forget that the war will continue at some point, probably. And the trauma is not going to go away when the reporters move on to the next catastrophe and we don't think about Gaza anymore. People will suffer for years, decades, generations, as we have seen from this kind of violence. And, and this is not just Israel-Palestine. It's in Syria, the same thing. I mean, differently, but the same. It's in Ukraine, it's in Somalia, it's in Afghanistan, it's in Burma. I don't know how many places it exists, more than I know, more than I can count. Trauma, producing more trauma, producing more trauma. And refugees. There's, I think, 125,000 refugees in Israel who can't stay in their villages by the border, and of course, many more in Gaza and in all kinds of other places. And a lot of them are arriving at our southern border. And something has to be done about this. We have to figure something out. And we can't even discuss it. We can't even. Think about it. Just let the chaos fester more and more. But that's not today. Today, we're happy that there is a ceasefire. And there's some peace and rest for people who have been hearing bombs dropped on them constantly. And some happiness for people whose families are being made whole again when hostages come home when prisoners are released. So now that I've got you really depressed, I will cheer you up with a funny poem. And I'm glad my friend Forrest is here, who's a, one, one of our great poets. I, I, I thought of doing this before I knew you would be here. I, who knew you would be here? You know? So I'll read a funny poem uh, for Forrest and all of you. Okay, I'll put my voice up. Thank you. Poem, Others, Others. That's the name of this poem, Others. One of my favorite subjects. Those pesky others, you know. <laughs> others are forever with you when you're with them. 
and you are here where others are others only insofar as others render under Caesar, etc., unto Caesar, etc. Others are tantamount to a cascade of moss-hung elm, a field of daisies or grasses wildly waving branchlets among people in trees or on roads when they move about themselves and the others in their way. Are the ways of others always in the way? insofar as you want to go to where you are in your own way. Others in the way mark the way as the way. If the others were not in the way, the way would be so lonesome you could die without the others of loneliness and lack of air, for others are the air you breathe, the way you walk, the sea you plunge into. Others are fated to be here in you. You are where they live. Others are you, you must be them. Others are never others. They must be other than themselves, other than the others you take them to be. I'll, I'll read that again. I might have botched it a little bit. Others. <clears throat> others are forever with you when you're with them, and you are here where others are others, only insofar as others render unto, unto Caesar, etc. Others are tantamount to a cascade of moss-hung elm, a field of daisies or grasses wildly waving branchlets among people in trees or on roads when they move about themselves and the others in their way. Are the ways of others always in the way, insofar as you want to get to where you are in your own way? Others in the way mark the way as the way. If the others were not in the way, the way would be so lonesome you could die without the others of loneliness and lack of air, for others are the air you breathe, the way you walk, the sea you plunge into. Others are fated to be here in you. You are where they live. Others are you. You must be them. Others are never others. They must be other than themselves, other than the others you take them to be. So can you hear Vasubandhu all over that poem? <laughs> right? Isn't that right? That's all I ever write about is Vasubandhu, you know. I thought I was escaping it, but no. So the question is, how are you experiencing in your own thinking and in your own feeling and in your own perception the fact that oneness and separation are really the same thing? That's the question. And if that question doesn't make any sense to you, make up another one. Groups of three. We're going to talk about that question, okay? How, how, 